buddy. <clears throat> How you doing? <laughs> um, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, we're going to be reading from 1 Samuel 17, uh, verses 32 to 50, and that is the exact verses, right? Just in case there's some other, you want to throw some extra ones, or is that? <laughs> in Proverbs, how about that? <laughs> anyway, 1 Samuel 17, Verse 32. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go up and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. <clears throat> and if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took a staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, "'My dog, that you come to me with sticks?' And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all his assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. In his book, Immeasurable, Syke Jethani writes this, compare two leaders. Leader A lifted an entire nation in a time of despair. He mobilized his people against unimaginable odds. With a clear vision and inspiring passion, 
He launched a movement that has impacted literally everyone alive today. He set in motion an industrial and scientific revolution that produced the first computer, the first jet airplane. It began human exploration of space and unlocked the mystery of nuclear energy. Almost every aspect of the modern world has in one way or another been influenced by this man. By the time he died at the age of 56, everyone on the planet knew his name. Without a doubt, Leader A changed the world. Leader B lived during the same era. In fact, he died just 21 days before Leader A, but his life was very different. At the height of his influence, Leader B ran a school with just 100 students. He wrote a few books, but was not widely regarded. He was beloved by his friends and family and had a reputation for being both intelligent and faithful. But at the time of his death, almost no one knew his name and most considered his life's work unfulfilled, including Leader B himself. So given the choice, which leader's strategies would you rather study? Which leadership conference would you rather attend? The one featuring a keynote address by Leader A or the one with the small workshop in a back hall led by Leader B? If you are inspired by the world-changing effectiveness of Leader A, congratulations, you've chosen Adolf Hitler. Leader B was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was executed by the Nazis for his relentless opposition to Hitler. Things are not what they seem. The pursuits that our culture would tell us to follow are not always the best. So what we have here in our passage is two very different people. And we're not even gonna talk about Goliath, okay? Even though that was prominent in the story. We have two very different kinds of leaders. We have one is King Saul, who you would expect that by now in the passage would be a great leader of men. And the other one is David, the shepherd, who you wouldn't really expect to be a leader of anything because he's just a kid in this passage. He's just a kid. And yet things are not what they seem. So we're going to look at both of these. So first, we're going to look at Saul. Okay, let's look at Saul. Back in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, Saul is chosen as king of Israel by Samuel, or God told Samuel to go and anoint Saul with oil. Listen to the description of him. It says, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Saul had three things going for him. First was his appearance. He was Handsome and he was tall, uh, both qualities that would have been admired by the people. Uh, those are still qualities that are admired by people. Uh, second, he was unassuming. Uh, I don't know that we'll call him humble, but he was unassuming. When the prophet Samuel approached him to anoint him as king over Israel, he didn't feel qualified. This is what he said. Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? 
There's no reason to think that he wasn't sincere in that. He didn't feel qualified. He didn't feel like he could do the job. Then the third one is that he actually had God's hand on him. We find out after all of this that suddenly God's spirit comes upon him and he begins to prophesy with the other prophets. Um, he is prophesying and God's spirit is there on him. But when it comes time for Samuel to name the king in front of everyone, they can't find him because he's hiding in the baggage. He's hiding from everybody. So he has all three of these things going for him. That's actually a positive thing. Overconfidence doesn't work well. Um, so these are the three things that are happening. But something is off with Saul. Something's not right with Saul. And it's because I think he operates on his own timetable and not on God's timetable. We have, we have examples of that here in 1 Samuel. In chapter 13, we have this story uh, that Samuel had told Saul to wait for him for seven days down there at Gilgal. Gilgal's the place it keeps coming up. We talked about it before. Gilgal is a place right across from the Jordan River, right near Jericho. And it was a place where they met uh, numerous times to renew covenants and to, and to gather the people. And here they are. He is going there to meet with the people. Samuel says, wait for me. I'll be there in seven days and we will sacrifice together. They're about to launch out against the Philistines. Well, the seven days go by and Samuel doesn't show up. And so Saul, instead of going, because Samuel was a prophet of God, and this would have been God's word to him to wait, instead of doing that, he sees that the people are afraid and they're restless and they're starting to scatter and he's a leader and he's got to do something about it. Seems reasonable, right? So he is going to go with his own instincts. And what does he do? He starts the sacrifice without Samuel at all. But when Samuel shows up, he rebukes Saul for taking matters into his own hands. And this seems to be a pattern in Saul's life. Look, listen to how Samuel rebukes him. And Samuel said to Saul, this is chapter 13, verse 13, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. He is not that far into his kingdom. He's following his own plan. David Brooks, in an article uh, in a New York Times opinion piece entitled How Democracies Perish, says this. Notre Dame political scientist Patrick Deenan's new book, Why Liberalism Failed, is a challenge to those who want to revive the liberal democratic order. Now, we're not talking about liberal or conservative, okay? We're not talking about our present divide. We're talking about democracy, a liberal democracy that the U.S. was founded on, which is 
uh, a system that marries majority rule with individual rights. That's, that's what's being referred to here by uh, the, the liberal democratic um, order. Uh, so this is, this is what he says. Deenan argues that liberal democracy has betrayed its promises. Now, you may not agree with any of this, or you might. Just go with me on it. Just I have a point to make, I promise. So Deenan argues that liberal democracy has betrayed its promises. It was supposed to foster equality, but it has led to great inequality and a new aristocracy. It was supposed to give average people control over government, but average people feel alienated from government. It was supposed to foster liberty, but it creates a degraded popular culture in which consumers become slaves to their appetites. Many young people feel trapped in a system they have no faith in. Deenan quotes one of his students, because we view humanity and thus its institutions as corrupt and selfish, the only person we can rely upon is ourself. The only way we can avoid failure, being let down and ultimately succumbing to the chaotic world around us, therefore, is to have the means, the financial security, to rely only upon ourselves. So whether you agree with that, whether you agree with the premise of the book or not, the self-reliance part is absolutely true. People are pursuing their own paths for everything. There's actually a poll done by the Wall Street Journal and NORC, NORC is, I found out this week, I didn't know this, you probably already know this, it's the social research arm of the University of Chicago, and it did a poll together with the Wall Street Journal about trends in America, and the headline is this, America pulls back from values that wants to find it. The values that it is pulling back from are actually values that are plummeting, Patriotism and religion are in free fall. The value of having children, the value of contributing to your community, and the value of hard work are also in decline, according to the poll. A leading theory for why this is happening is the rise in individualism, a me-first mentality that places personal peace and affluence above everything else. So having children would be a financial imposition. Working for the community would take away from personal peace and personal time. People are focusing more on their own racial or cultural backgrounds rather than on what Americans have in common. But there's one category that grew in importance, only one, and it's money, money. This is according to that poll. I don't think they're lying. There is a huge decline in many, many things. But welcome to the human race. Welcome to the human race. See, this is what Saul did. His life was not about his people or being king. It was about himself and how he looked and how he came across and what, he was, what the effect he was having on people. He was looking out for himself first, his security, his reputation, his leadership. It was all about him. And in our story this morning, the Philistines and the Israelites, they are lined up against each other on the brows of two hills, and they're looking cross at each other. And there's this giant named Goliath who comes out and challenges the Israelites. This is what it says. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? 
Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that way that we may fight together. And the men are terrified. And so is Saul. Their fearless leader is not so fearless. How do I know he's terrified? It doesn't say it in so many words, but look at one of the things he promises. One of the guys says to David, the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Saul is desperate. Come somebody, come and fight this man and save us from this. He is trying to figure a way out of this. He's desperate. He has in Goliath a formidable enemy, right? He doesn't think he can defeat him. And so he's terrified. And brothers and sisters, I hate to admit it, but I think we are way more like Saul than we care to admit that when difficulties arise, that when we feel threatened, when things that are valuable to us are in jeopardy, it makes us fear. And what is our reaction to fear? Well, it's not usually to wait or be still or to trust, but it's usually to take the bull by the horns, to try to control, to do everything in our power to change whatever it is that we are afraid of. And when we can't, fear only increases. See, fear is this feeling that we are alone in the world, that we alone bear the burden of whatever it is. And here's the thing about what we fear. Usually it's something that is non-negotiable for us that is in jeopardy. It's a person or a thing or something that we value so highly that when it's being threatened, we feel like our very lives are threatened and it drives us into overdrive to try to control the situation. What are you afraid of this morning? How do you handle that? Somehow we need to go way beyond where Saul is. And that brings me to David. There's something very different about David. Of course, he's just a young man and doesn't, doesn't have all the responsibilities that Saul has. His talk is cheap. He can show up at the, at the place and say, who is this guy? And he doesn't have that responsibility. Nobody's looking to him at all. He's young. But when he hears Goliath talk, he's really angry. This is what he says. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's pretty strong. But no one takes him seriously because he's just a kid. His brother Eliab rebukes him. He basically says, you act all tough but your heart is evil. You're just trying to stir everyone up so you can watch the battle. You are in this for yourself. You don't know what you're talking about, David. He's just this kid from the shepherd out on the fields. What do you know? You know nothing. But Eliab really doesn't know anything. Um, see, here's the thing about David. From a very early age, 
he has learned to trust in God. So even though his brother minimizes his work as a shepherd, the truth is that being a shepherd was hard. Sometimes you have to protect the sheep from themselves. One of the implements of a shepherd is a rod, is a short stick with a big bulbous head like this. And it was an implement that the shepherd could throw at the sheep if they were getting into danger or getting near a cliff or they might throw over and he would throw it at them and knock them down so he could protect the sheep from themselves. But sometimes the enemy was a wild animal and it was very dangerous to be a shepherd. There were lions and bears around and that were ready to go after the sheep and the shepherd was responsible for the safety of the flock. It wasn't easy to be a shepherd at all. And David had been through all of this and through it all he had learned to trust in God. But I think that there's something beyond all of this, beyond all just the intense moments of being a shepherd, because those moments of panic or of real danger were probably not as common as you might think. There weren't animals all the time coming after the flock. So I think there's something beyond all of this that David had grabbed a hold of. And I think it had to do with a rhythm of life or a pattern of life that David has, a life that David had devoted himself to. See, most of the time when you're watching the sheep, you don't have much to do. There's a lot of silence, no cell phone, no social media. No, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves sitting out there in the dark, couldn't even read maybe. There was much silence and alone time, much time to think. And I think that what is being intimated here, when we look at the life of David early on, is that David used his time wisely. The rhythm of his life was to cultivate a relationship with God. Everything we see about David is that the rhythm of his life was to cultivate a relationship with God. Listen to this much beloved and well-known Psalm 23 of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. It is God that provides for his needs. He knows that. He looked to him as his shepherd he restores my soul. It's God that gives him peace and satisfaction and well-being. He cultivated that day after day, night after night, sitting out on the fields watching the sheep. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It is God that works the righteousness in him. He wasn't depending on himself, but he was depending on God alone so that this next verse might be true. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. See, because of this rhythm of life, he's positive that God is with him, that God will protect him, that God walks along with him. See, it's this rhythm. It's this constant rhythm 
seeking after God. It's this rhythm of life. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It is God who's the ultimate comforter. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Even in hard circumstances, he is feasting at God's table because his trust is unshakable. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. See, with God, no matter the circumstances, his days are full of goodness and mercy, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It is God that will take him home forever. Isn't this our hope? That we will be with him forever. That even in the presence of our enemies, he is with us. He sets a table. See, the rhythm of his life centered around God. And so when the day of trouble came, he was at complete peace and rest. He would stand for the name of God, come what may. But he was confident that God wouldn't put up with this foul-mouthed Philistine. He didn't care how big he was. He didn't care how strong he was. He didn't care that the entire Israelite army, including the king, was shaking with fear and running to hide. He didn't want to use the armor. He didn't need anything special. He had built a life of trust, a rhythm of life of continual pursuit of God. And he'd been delivered many times. And there's nothing that would stop him from the defending the honor of his God. See, this wasn't about David at all. It was about the one who had been his comfort and his friend and his refuge in the middle of the night on the hillsides of Bethlehem. What kind of rhythm are you developing in your life? I fear that we've bought into what our culture has given us, has sold us. John Gardner was the Secretary of Health and Human Health Education and Welfare under President Lyndon Johnson. He said this, we can keep ourselves so busy, fill our lives with so many diversions, stuff our heads with so much knowledge, involve ourselves with so many people and cover so much ground that we never have time to probe the fearful and wonderful world within. By middle life, most of us are accomplished fugitives from ourselves. And what we need are the hillsides of Bethlehem in the silence where we live a different rhythm of life and we cultivate what he has for us. See, I think we've become fugitives from hearing that small, still voice of God. And what is that voice telling us? Because it's really important what the voice is telling us. If you can believe what John 16 tells us, and we can, it tells us that the Holy Spirit wants us to understand what Jesus has done, the work of Jesus. Do we get that Jesus was alone in the garden of Gethsemane and he was seeking his father because he was terrified at what lay ahead of him, but his father wasn't answering 
I mentioned this on Monday, Thursday. He was terrified. Jesus was terrified because he got a glimpse of what he would have to face. It wasn't a glimpse of the suffering he would endure on the cross. He knew that. He knew he would be crucified. He knew it would be terribly painful. He understood that reality and he readily accepted that for our sakes. No, he got a glimpse of what it would be like to be without his father. He got a glimpse of hell. He got a glimpse of what it would look like for him to be cut off for our sakes. And the anxiety, anxiety made him sweat drops of blood. And yet though he had to experience hell for us, he went through with it so that we would never have to experience that. You see, in rhythms of life, in rhythms of life, these truths start to sink down deeper he did this for me so that he will take me home so that nothing can take me out of his hand. Nothing can shake me. It doesn't matter what people do around me. It doesn't matter what people are giving me. It doesn't matter the hardship that comes into my life because I have Jesus, but I can't hear it because I'm too busy. I can't hear it because I got too much going on. I can't hear it because I'm, I'm, I'm rushing to do this or I'm helping with this or giving my kids this. Or I'm trying to work to make what I gotta make. What is the rhythm of your life? One of the things that I've mentioned before is what I long for is that this Sunday morning worship sort of begin, be the first thing that begins to dictate the rhythm of our life for the week. That this is the center point. We start thinking about Jesus. We get reminded of him again. We come to be with him. We worship him, to hear from him. And then we take this with us and we do what we did here every single day. When we come back together again, we go to our own Bethlehem hillside and we hear from him again and again and again. We need this time together. See, the voices out there are too strong. They're too strong. They're pounding you. They're pounding you on social media. They're pounding you on TV. They're pounding you in the movies. They're pounding you in your workplace. They are pounding you. And they're telling you that you can do it, that you're the center, that you're the most important thing. But then life happens and you get cancer or your kids struggle or are rebellious or worse, you struggle in your job or maybe you lose your job. Hardship happens and then panic sets in. And see, we need this time to be reminded. We need a different rhythm of life so that when the hardship comes, we're ready. Psalm 112.7 says, the one who follows, who trusts in the Lord, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversary. See, I think this is, I think this is why David could come and say, are we going to let this filthy Philistine do this? His spiritual rhythms were that he 
or hear from God, to talk with God, to live in relationship with his God, and then to trust his God in all things. And he went out against all odds, and there's no reason, humanly speaking, for him to win a victory against Goliath. But of course, we know that it was God's victory. We won't always get the victory like David got with Goliath, but that won't always happen. It's not an easy road. It's much easier to get busy at work, to get busy with our entertainments, to be busy with friends or with social media or a million other things. But my challenge to us this day is to be silent, to find our Galilean hillside, to seek his face and to cultivate, cultivate a rhythm of life where we look for him and we listen for his voice because he's the only one with the words of comfort and the words of eternal life. That's our Jesus. This is the gospel and it changes everything. Let me pray.